So, uh, hello everyone. Thank you for joining us today at Untitled Art Podcast on the second panel of the day. I am Clara Andrade, the Director of Development and Programming at Untitled Art. I am thrilled to introduce this panel discussion with Atlanta-based sculptor Curtis Patterson in a conversation with Aaron Levi Garvey, the inaugural Janet L. Nolan Director of Curatorial Affairs and the Jewel Collins Smith Museum of Fine Arts at Auburn University. And I decidedly invite you all to see the solo presentation at Langley Contemporary at booth C18, which as a side and a personal note, is one of the highlights of this year's fair. The talk will touch on Patterson's legendary impact as a professor and the development of his artistic philosophies and influences since the mid-1970s. The discussion will also highlight Patterson's numerous public sculptures and invite his thoughts on historic and contemporary monuments. The program will emphasize Patterson's position in the pantheon of black sculptures, including and serve as an introduction to his prolific studio practice. Our moderator, Aaron Levi Garvey, is a Jewish American curator working in contemporary arts and culture and is the inaugural Janet L. Nolan Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Joel Collins Smith Museum of Fine Arts at Auburn University. Levi Garvey has an expanded curatorial trajectory. In addition to that, he is the co-founder and director of Long Road Projects Foundation, an organization that focuses on supporting artists with residency, edition, publishing, and exhibition opportunities. Garvey has worked with Creative Capital for the Visual Arts Grand Award and has been a visiting curator and lecturer at many U.S. institutions. He's also a collaborating curator with Independent Curators International. With no further ado, I hand the mic over to you, Aaron. Thank you all. We are really honored to have the opportunity to get an in-depth look into Curtis Patterson's work at the Untitled Art Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. It's very close. Thank you to Untitled and everyone that's made this possible. And most of all, thank you to Curtis for making such wonderful and incredible and insightful work throughout your career, being a lifelong educator. Um, yeah, let's let's dive right into it. So Shreveport, Louisiana. Let's talk, let's talk about a little bit of the beginning before we get to Atlanta. Okay, I'm Curtis Patterson, born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, attended uh, undergraduate school at Grambling State University, of course in Grambling, Louisiana. And uh, I'm based in Atlanta now. I have a, studio, a fabrication studio in, in Atlanta where I do most of the fabrication. Um, most of the large-scale work that I do, I'm assisted by my son, Curtis Patterson II. Um, and the smaller works, I pretty much do on my own. Nice, nice. Is he your only studio help, studio hand? Is it just the two of you working together? Uh, several years ago, I used to hire like maybe one or two other assistants to help me, but he's become quite proficient in recent years. and. For the most part, it's just the two of us. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The student and the teacher combining, right? Right. 
So tell me, how, how did you come to Atlanta? When did, when did you decide that Atlanta was the stop? Well, while I was matriculated there at Grambling, one of the exciting things that happened to me there, my, there were not really a lot of venues for African-Americans to exhibit their work. And there was this one exhibition in Atlanta called the Atlanta Annual uh, Art Exhibition, and it was primarily for artists of color. And my major professor, Harper T. Phillips, was a student of the gentleman who actually started the Atlanta University um, exhibition. His name was Hill Woodruff. He was a muralist and painter. And uh, I heard Harper T. talk about Mr. Woodruff constantly. And I recall one year he was actually getting one of his pieces ready to exhibit in Atlanta. And I had the honor of helping him to build a crate to ship it to Atlanta. I'd never been there before. And uh, I always wanted to go to Atlanta. <clears throat> so as soon as I graduated from, from Grambling, I got a job in Columbus, Georgia. I taught at Spencer High School for one year. And during that time, I had an opportunity to, to visit Atlanta and fell in love with it. I heard so much about it before going, before going there. And I knew the history of, you know, the exposure of art as far as African-Americans were concerned. So I got very excited about it. Once I visited there, I, you know, I decided that I wanted to live there and I never looked back. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You made it home. Right. Truly home. I mean, you've been in Atlanta since 76, 75. No, actually, I moved in 71. Am okay. I right, Gloria? <laughs> 72. Okay. <laughs> So you've been through a lot of change in the city, a lot of different avenues in the arts community as a whole, but you've been an anchor point. You've been the staple and you're part of that lineage. Mildred Thompson was there. Hale Woodruff was there. You were there. Tell me about those early days in the arts community there. Were you doing artist run spaces? Were you only making art yourself? Like how were you supporting each other in that arts community? Well, I, I don't know if I would consider myself an anchor, uh, but um, I had the opportunity of actually meeting Mr. Woodruff uh, and also Romero Beard. The two of them were actually uh, invited to a friend of mine's house, uh, and she invited me over to meet both of them. And I had no idea of the magnitude of their work at that time. Um, what I did with Mr. Woodruff, because I had heard about him three or four years while I was in college. Uh, but it's, it's been an interesting, really an interesting stay there. I've always felt, you know, at home and pretty much welcome there. And the experience, I had six years of experience working in the Atlanta public school system before going to the college. And that was really very, a very good experience. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the students that I taught while I was teaching in public school system just happens to be partially probably one of the reasons that this is happening today. Uh, Susan Laney, who is the uh, gallerist, uh, was uh, a student of my student, uh, Andrew Cunningham, actually. So it's, it's really kind of serendipitous that this all happened. Uh, but 
uh, after teaching for six years in the Atlanta Public Schools, I had an opportunity to go to the Atlanta College of Art, and I, I worked there for 30 years and have met, you know, so many students um, and had an opportunity to, to just really have a really fun experience there. That's right. I mean, that, uh, most notable, Fahamo Pico, Tony Rodriguez, Carl Joe Williams, Radcliffe Bailey. Those are all from what I call and what a lot of friends call like the Atlanta school, essentially. Right. And, and, and the list goes on. I don't know if you mentioned Melissa. I don't know if you mentioned Melissa Mancini as well, who is actually slated to do this interview. That's right. Yeah, That's she right. was a student also. I was getting to Melissa because she started out as an artist and then she is now a prolific curator. So right. I wanted to get right. into Absolutely. her as how, right. that transitionary period um, from artist to curator. Uh, talking about transition, you started working with painting, wood, cardboard sculpture, things like that. When did you choose Corten? When, when did steel come into play? Uh, well, actually, I started out in painting and drawing, and I never really reached the level of proficiency <laughs> that I thought that I needed to draw or paint. And I recall one of the transformative things that happened to me. I was actually working in clay at Graham Lake, and I was seated by a, a large window, and the sun was shining very brightly coming through the window. And I was making the first vessel that I made out of clay. It was just a simple pot. But one of the things that I noticed as I was constructing it is that I was using the coil method. It's like building with coils. As I built the pot, I noticed the, the uh, shadow being cast on the table that I was working on. And that was really, that was, a, that was an aha moment. I've been trying to draw steel lives and other things uh, that was set up for me and put the shadow in the right place for three and a half years when I was in college. And all of a sudden the shadow appears in the right place. Right. So that was kind of the turning point for me. That's when I started working three-dimensionally. Okay. What, what is your most monumental work? What's the largest public sculpture that you've ever executed and where does it exist? Actually, uh, Probably one of the first ones that I did. It's a piece in Atlanta that was done uh, in 1977, which was probably long before you were born. <laughs> not, not, not by much. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that piece was commissioned by the uh, Bureau of Cultural Affairs. And uh, it's located in one of the gateways of the Atlanta community. Uh, and I really, I'm really pretty excited about that piece because it's been there for over 40 years and about three years ago they decided to uh actually uh refurbish the piece and did you, uh, did you have a hand in the refurbishing yes i did okay. i did and that that was a very interesting uh experience and it turned out great uh, i also did a, a piece for roy wilkins uh which is located up in St. Paul, Minnesota. That piece is made out of fabricated bronze. And it's about 50 by 75 feet. So it's probably more expansive than any of the other work that I've done. But the first piece that I did was fairly monumental in itself. One question about the refurbishing process. 
Was there anything you would have changed about the piece when you went back to it 40 years later? Uh, <laughs> it's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just think about like stylistically how, how your works have changed over the years and how you're in a new vernacular. There's new, there's new pieces, there's new shapes, there's new ideas flowing. And I, I wondered, would you look at something from 40 years ago and say, well, I would add this idea to it, or I would add this idea to it. Did that ever, or did that inform new pieces of similar monumental scale? Well, one of the things I like about what I'm doing now, I'm working in a series, it's called the Rocco series, and all of them don't rock. Uh, I told my nephew that, and uh, he said, yes, they do, Uncle Ray. <laughs> That's my middle name. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, the Rocco series is it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a study you know, kind of a, a, a number of maquettes that I would like to see realized at some point. But of course, funding that is, you know, some sort of an issue. But I don't, I don't really bother about that. I, I, I just enjoy the process of doing it. You know, maybe some of them will get built. Uh, maybe not. But I enjoy seeing the potential of what can happen. And uh, that's that's. That's very rewarding for me. So, so tell me about that process. You're creating, I mean, in my mind, these are full-on sculptures. In your mind, they're, they're maquettes. They're ideas for future pieces. So tell me about that maquette process because there's a lot of labor going into these pieces. These rocker pieces are three feet, two feet, one foot. You know, they're, they're substantial. So how well, much bigger small. can they go? But that's small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's okay. I mean, I think they can they can hold their ground, you know, at that at um, that scale. Uh, but I think you know it, it could have an even more impactful, you know, uh, meaning if if some of them were actually made. I don't think all of them necessarily have to be made large, but I think it. You know, we're in the process right now of uh, doing what we call. 2x it's like doubling the size and a, a, a size and a half actually i just finished a piece out of stainless for a community near uh atlanta uh serenby uh, uh which is located about 30 miles out of atlanta and uh it's at a two and a half x scale and it's a very comfortable scale for me and my son to build uh I don't get around like I did 10 or 15 years ago, but he's right down the road and he comes up, you know, occasionally on weekends to help me out. And uh, we have a, a pretty good pace going in, in, with fabrication. So let's talk about symbology within your works and symbolism within your works. And, and for instance, the Yoruba double ax or the double iron that is used repeatedly and the African iconography that you focus in on. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, African artists has such an uh, impactful, um, it has been so impactful as far as uh, contemporary modern art is concerned. And a lot of people don't know that. 
so I'm trying to use some of those images to just kind of explore the idea, you know, and uh, just have more people informed about, you know, some of the contributions that have been made in the past from that perspective. Do you find that there is a repeat shape or a repeat pattern that is threaded throughout the works? Of course, in the Rocker series, there's a, a rounded edge to it. But is that a repeated shape? Is it the same every time? Is, it, is there a ratio that you follow with that? There are repeat shapes. Uh, I, I use... I use a curve a lot. Uh, I, I like I like what you what can occur within a spiral. I mean, you can create a spiral using a curve, and that's a very strong image. As a matter of fact, I, one of the pieces in the in the Araka series is called just simply that, just spiral, and it's just kind of a series of curvilinear pieces which creates a spiral. So that image occurs in my work quite a bit. Can you talk a little bit about the finish and the patina and how you achieve those different finishes, the greens, the brown tones, the bronze tones, the, the, the polish, the unpolished? How does, how does that happen? How does that occur? Oh, that's the secret sauce. Okay. All right. Never mind. <laughs> Keep that to yourself. Then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't mind sharing that. I don't know if I want to share it on the podcast, no, but I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, that's secretive that it's not, that I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's all right. That's all yeah. right. But, you know, it's really interesting because it's hard to repeat. Even if I tried to repeat it myself, I wouldn't be able to replicate the same thing that I did before. I mean, I could come close perhaps, but it, it would be very difficult to, to replicate it. It's just simply because of the interaction of the chemicals, you know? That's right. That's yeah. right. I, I, I mean, <laughs> There's like a painterly quality to it too. Yeah. So if you're having these repeating structures or repeating patterned shapes, right, each one is always going to be unique, no right. matter what that painterly quality on the finish is. Absolutely. That's quite beautiful. It's quite beautiful. Yeah. We talked about your monumental scale on works. Um, tell me tell me a little bit of your thoughts on the national discussion towards monuments and the understanding of monuments in this country? That's a very interesting question because of what has happened in the last couple of years involving monuments. I'm in favor of monuments. I just simply think that the monuments should be something that would help to uh, homogenize uh, justice and equality for for all people and not something that would be presented as a separatist a separatist idea uh but you know i think it's important people do important things and i think they need recognition for it and as a matter of fact a lot of the things that i'm doing they're not monuments necessarily but they're they're done in order to recognize some of the contributions of people that I feel have done so much, uh, have made such an important contribution. I just think they should be recognized. Uh, 
a couple of pieces. I, I have a show now in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And a couple of pieces in particular I did. I was not commissioned to do these pieces, but it was just something that I wanted to do for myself to honor these people that I felt that had done such an important work. And that was Rosa Parks and Nelson Mandela. Um, as I say, these were not commissioned pieces, but this is just something that I wanted to do on my own. And I've, I've done a number of other pieces, you know, to kind of commemorate athletes, uh, jazz musicians, uh, you know, people in the entertainment world. Uh, and, and this is just to, to pay homage to people that I think have done so much to, you know, advance our civilization, essentially. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Speaking of the Vizard show, um, you and Melissa worked on that exhibition. There are prints in that show, so you do printmaking also. Right. Tell me about this. How does printmaking and metal sculpture, how do these two worlds collide? How does how, how is that balance? How does that work? Well, I got my, I got my start and working with art two-dimensionally, you know, and one of the things that my professor taught me that he was taught from Hale Woodruff was design, you know, good design can be the, you know, both two-dimensional or three-dimensional. Uh, and I had actually gotten away from working two-dimensionally. My son actually kind of encouraged me to work a little bit more uh, two-dimensionally. And this, this was an excellent opportunity because what I'm doing with most of the pieces with the copper collet pieces, there are actually elements of some of the sculptures. If you look at them closely, you'll see some of the same images repeated. So it's, it's you know, in a way, it's just kind of reinforcing the same thing on a graphically or two-dimensionally rather than three-dimensionally. And, and, and conceptually, those do you, do you consider those sketches of monumental things, sketches and homage right. to these individuals as well? Right. Amazing. Right. Incredible. Incredible. What, what's your dream project? Hmm. And a bottomless, bottomless budget anywhere in the world. Yeah. What's your dream well, project? A bottomless budget. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can't say I really have anything particularly in mind. You know, I mean, I believe in working kind of organically. Uh, I'm not, I'm not one who does a lot of planning. I probably should do more, but I don't know. I, I kind of like the pace that I'm working at. I don't like the pressure of you know, having to do for somebody else. Uh, and that's kind of one of the distinct things about commission work and the work that that I do on my own. Like when I work on a piece for Nelson Mandela for Rosa Parks, I had nobody say, you know, this should be there or this should be that or, well, and, you know, it's, it's just totally intuitive. And for the most part, even with the commission work, I mean, I have some degree of that, but you all always have, uh, when you're dealing with public work, you have other people involved and they have their agendas and ideas that they want to pursue. But 
for the most part, most of the ones that I've been involved with has worked out fairly well. So if it was a non-commission, where would where do you want to see one of your pieces the most in the world? Where would you love to say Curtis Patterson belongs there and that's where it has to be? I don't I don't know if I have that desire. I mean, I really, I really don't. I mean, I, I get so much fulfillment out of going to my studio working and you know, I mean, I feel like there's um, some degree of interest uh, that's occurring now. And I, I, I feel like, you know, things will, things will happen, you know, but I can't, I can't say that I just got that desire to do this. I had a desire to own a Porsche. And I finally did that a long time ago. <laughs> And quite honestly, I can't say that I got that that kind of desire for. I mean, I have a desire to for my family to be healthy. That's extremely important to me, and for myself, you know, to have good health. But I, I don't have that burning desire for that piece to be somewhere in particular at this point, anyway. What what's on the horizon? As far as projects go or exhibitions, what are you what are you ruminating on right now? Now that the Vizards show is open, it's on the walls, it's on the floor, it's on pedestals. Susan has your work here at the fair. What's on the horizon? Are you taking take a break for a month or two? Or uh, do you take well breaks? that too? But I'd, I'd like to see a continuation of that. I'd like for my work to get further exposure. You know, one of the things that you know, my career took kind of a different path because of my involvement in academia for 30 years, well, 30 plus years, because I taught in high school for six years. But uh, uh, I don't know what's next. You know, all I know is when I get up in the morning and <clears throat> go to my studio and work and, you know, I feel like I've, I have a very good friend who is a sculptor also, his name is Martin Payton. We talk with each other pretty often. And he, he refers to it as making licks, going to the studio and making licks. And he called me up sometimes and said, have you made many licks recently? And I do the same to him. So, I mean, that's what I really enjoy, going there. And uh, I also like the freedom of working in my yard. I mean, I don't want to go to the studio every day. I mean, sometimes I just enjoy you know spending time with the family um doing things at my home and you know just enjoying life what, with that balance and not having the studio every day what does a typical day in the studio look like a typical day is if i'm lucky i'll get there by 11 o'clock <laughs> And I'll work probably. You're the boss. For, uh, You're the boss. You can show up whenever you want. <laughs> yeah, some days I get there early. I I, I befriended uh, a few friends in the complex where I work now, and uh, it's it's actually a metal fabrication shop. They they get there at six o'clock in the morning, and I've been thinking about trying that. Sometimes I haven't done it yet. I had to do it when I was working on some of the larger commission works, but I mean, just now I'm thinking about just trying to get out earlier so I can get back 
earlier, but I, I, I spend, you know, a good eight to 10 hours in the studio. Yeah. And, and that is all metal work. That's welding. That's yeah, I mean, listening to a little bit of Monk, wow. listening to a little bit of Miles, listening to a little bit of Train. Okay. You know, that's, that's all part of the same process, you know. Let's talk about that organic process. So jazz is part of your process. Do you consider yourself, I don't want to say a, a, a musician necessarily, but are you a jazz artist in the way, would you consider yourself a jazz artist in the way that you work organically and that it's intuitively? Yes, very much. I think that's one of the things that I enjoy so much about jazz. It's so spontaneous and unpredictable and unrehearsed you know I, I when i'm working when i'm composing a piece i can take a a circle and decide to maybe add a linear piece to it and decide to put it here there or wherever i want and people come and say i like it you know what i mean that's <laughs> and, and i got the feeling that if i put it to someplace else somebody else may have said the same thing it's just it's a tremendous amount of freedom. It really is. I mean, and to have people come here and say, well, you know, I like that. Uh, it's, it's, it's just really a rewarding experience. It really is. So a, a thought just came to mind when you said freedom. With your works, the works that are on display here specifically, gravity is holding them together do you see there's a sense of freedom in those works to kind of settle into each other? Like the components settle into them to make and comprise the sculpture. And if you look at it, you say, okay, maybe component a doesn't necessarily fit the way I want it to fit with component D or H or something. Z mm -hmm. is that, is that the type of freedom that you think about? Right. And is that, right. and, and is that why they're not, welded and joined together well a couple of things they're not welded because um i like the idea of the, the portability of them they're, they're slot fitted i like joinery and uh, slot is a type of joint there's no there are no welds in any of these pieces all of them are just slot fitted together and they can actually be rearranged um in other position not all of them but some of them can be actually rearranged and uh, I like that. Even the, uh, the two and a half X scale pieces can be slot fitted as well. They can be weld they can be welded because when they get larger, it's a little bit more difficult to handle them. Uh, so some of them are welded, the, the larger scale ones, but the smaller pieces are just held together by the slots interlocking. Uh, just absolutely brilliant. I love it. Well, thank it. you. That, that, there's that free form there. That's, I don't know. I, I just absolutely love that. I think it's brilliant. I think I've asked maybe too many questions. Maybe we open it up to the, to the crowd to see, does anyone want to ask any questions? We open it up to the audience. Curtis, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the masks that are on, on display in the booth as well. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, there, uh, there are actually six masks here at the uh, Untitled uh, exhibition. 
but they're they're actually twelve. There six of them are in in uh, Richmond in another exhibition, and the masks were made um, primarily symbolizing each. There are twelve of them, and they're, they symbolize each month of the year. Uh, way too many years ago, I did a a mask for my wife out of cast bronze, and uh, I had. In mind of doing 12 of them. Uh, and I've only done eight so far. And she keeps asking me, when am I going to finish? I do plan to finish them, honey. <laughs> but the process was, was casting. And I needed a foundry in order to do that. Well, I'm no longer at the Atlanta College of Art, which is where we had a foundry. I could do these myself. Uh, but fabricating is a lot more direct, whereas... Uh, casting is indirect. So I was able to do these within, I think, probably about eight or nine months. I was able to complete them. Uh, and uh, like I said, they are in bronze, but they're fabricated as opposed to cast. And, and one of the reasons I did this is because I wanted to transition from freestanding pieces to something on the wall. So that's how I actually uh, started doing it. When I when I did the first piece, I was just planning to do a wall piece, and I noticed that it looked like a mask. So I just decided to explore the idea, the idea, and do uh, eleven more. Yeah, <laughs> it just snowballed from there. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Would anyone else like to ask a question? I was just noting the grid pattern motif that pops up repeatedly sometimes on the ground. Oh, yes. Sometimes on the ground, sometimes on the objects, even on the wall. The grid pattern, you say? Yes, that, that I'm seeing over and over again. Um, could you talk about Show that? Show me the grid pattern you're talking about. Like in the towns? Oh, oh, that's part of the secret sauce, man. <laughs> Asking for secrets. Asking for secrets. <laughs> this this will probably be my last question. Um, maybe a sentimental note. Um, do you ever miss teaching? Do you ever miss being around students? Uh, I don't know if I miss it so much, but I mean, I enjoy it, but I, I really enjoy, I'm, I'm in contact with a lot of my students, former students. I mean, Melissa, I mean, this is, all this is happening because of her. Uh, so I'm in contact with a lot of my former students and uh, I can't say I miss it that much, but, you know, I did enjoy it and um I, I, you know, I still try and stay connected with my former students. Yeah. Incredible. Curtis, thank you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Untitled. Thank you, Omar. Thank you, Jeff. Wherever, wherever everyone is. But thank you for this opportunity. And thank you for attending. But most of all, Curtis, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting thank you. me. Thank you.